Thank you for downloading this Brum Radio podcast. For more podcasts, visit brumradio.com. Welcome to the Freak Scene podcast with me, Dave Travis, promoter, photographer, and friend to the stars, some of whom pop into the Brum Radio studios for a chat. If you want to listen to the whole show, which includes the music, then pop along to mixcloud.com forward slash Brum Radio. I'm Dave Travis, you're listening to Brum Radio, and uh, that was a great track there, Rudy's in Love by Locomotive, which uh, brings us into my guest this week, Jim Simpson. Hello, Jim. Hello, great to be here. And uh, you're uh, extremely well known, obviously, for Big Bear Records and uh, for the Birmingham International Jazz Festival, but a lot of people might not have known that uh, you played on that track, that's your band, wasn't it, Locomotive? Um, so, yeah, everyone thinks that. It was my band. Uh, I left the band on the eve of recording that, that in order to manage it, so I was... Uh, I was itching in the control room, wishing I'd got a trumpet with me while somebody else was doing the playing. Yeah, still counts though, really, doesn't yeah, it? it does. Yeah, So, well, you joined Locomotive, what, in 65, 1965? I formed a, a band called the Kansas City 7th in 1964. None of us had been further west towards Kansas City than Western Supermare <laughs> at the time. And it was a sort of Kansas City swing, swing band. And we graduated in, into the Blues Hounds, and then we decided... Um, we needed a more commercial name, so we became a locomotive. So it, it ran for about eight years. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So you, you left in 68 to manage the band, didn't you? And then, yeah. uh, I mean, an incredible career, really, isn't it? You, uh, I've, I've seen photos of you at jazz gigs in the 1950s, and, you know, then there's that famous one. Who was it? There was it somewhere <laughs> in Balsall Heath, wasn't it? Was it uh, Louis Armstrong? It was Louis Armstrong was playing at a place called the Embassy Sports Drum on Walford Road, Spark Hill. Uh, it's the first time since the MU ban that he he toured in, in the UK, that is, and it was on a revolving stage. It was really weird because uh, you know you, you, half the time you saw their backs or their sides, and they were facing, then they were off again. But the band were on stage, and Trummy and Arvel and Barney and all the guys. There's no such. Yeah. And then suddenly, about three feet from my right ear, this most wonderful sound. It was such playing the melody line for Sleepy Time Down South. He was just walking down the aisle towards the stage, and the, the Birmingham Mel caught me with my mouth. Open, but, looking, uh, checking out his mouthpiece. Actually, yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a great photograph. If, uh, you've barely changed, to be honest. What year was that? 1954, <laughs> is it? Uh, yeah, I went to the RAF, 56. Oh, 56. Yeah. Okay, and revolving stages, they were quite... Part of, it wasn't a, a, an audience in the round then, was it? It was just a normal audience, and they just played on a revolving stage. Uh, uh, it was... Did somebody <laughs> just flick the switch and didn't know how to turn it off? <laughs> it was three quarters in the round, but there, there were quite a few revolving stages. One at the Tower Ballroom. Tower Ballroom, a famous yeah. one, because what they used to set one band up, didn't they? Um, and then the, what, the one band would finish, and then they'd come, come on playing straight away, so you wouldn't have changeovers like you do today so the, the stage revolve and hey here's the next band because people would dance more wouldn't they in those days i suppose Ooh, at gigs. always yeah very clever idea it didn't always work if the trumpet player leader of the supporting band got rather fed up with chris barber playing uh, the main stage he was tend to get drunk and press the button in the middle of chris yeah. barber's set yeah which wasn't totally popular with everybody no no it is so it is fraught with uh, with problems isn't it really and especially i do, as, I do apologize no that's it <laughs> So, uh, so yes, yeah, 68. And then, of course, you uh, you went on to... I mean, we've got so much to talk about, to be honest, but uh, you went on to uh, manage Black Sabbath, didn't you, after after Locomotive? Yeah, Locomotive was a bit of a, a kindergarten band. Um, uh, Carl Palmer, the drummer, told me that there's three, of them, three drummers in a hotel room in New York once, and they were chatting, and they all realised at one time that they'd been a Locomotive drummer. Yeah. It was John Bonham, uh, Mike Kelly... 
yeah. and, and Cole Palmer. Yeah. So oh, well, they'd all been in locomotive. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was it's a real kindergarten band. We we had a, a Chris Chris Woods in the band who yeah. went who went on to traffic. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Pete Pete York who yeah. went to Spencer Davis Group. Yeah. It, it was Mike the, Kelly, spooky too. Yeah. He is great. Yeah. What a good player. Yeah. I, I looked at the list of uh, you know ex band members and it is, it's uh, it's quite formidable, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But, but when I stopped playing with locomotive, I found myself with evenings free and got out to hear hear bands and of course. You know, you, you know the feeling. If you see a band you like, you've got to do something with it. I heard a band from Tamworth called Bakerloo Blues Line. We shortened it to Bakerloo. Uh, it was a time when the blues boom was dying. All the blues bands in this country were not great bands, great players, not a lot of good singers. And the blues boom was rather dying on its feet. And all, all the bands looked the same. They had the same haircut, wore the same denim jackets, denim trousers. They all smelled the same. And I... It was very hard to get a gig, even though Bakerloo were cut above the rest. So I rented the upstairs room in a pub on the corner of Station Street and Hill Street uh, on Tuesday nights. Uh, called it Tuesdays is Blues Days. That's at the uh, Crown. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, Henry was a rather glamorous Afghan hound that lived ne- next door to me. So we we made him immortal by calling it Henry's Blues House. And uh, started by putting Bakerloo on every week. After a while, they started to crack it and get better known and play elsewhere. We started putting American bluesmen in and British rock bands. The first American we had was Arthur Big Boy Crudup, who wrote Elvis Presley's That's All Right Now, Mama. And he was stunning. That was, that was Elvis Presley's first single, wasn't it? I think it was, yeah. Yeah, it was. Great, great single as well. And there was Arthur Crudup in, in a pub, opposite, a pub opposite New Street Station. I wish it was there now. Um, well, the pub still is there, isn't it? There's talk about trying to turn it into a, a, a sort of music museum. Yeah. But um, I don't know if that's that's going to happen. Well, it's amazing, uh, the history of the place, isn't it, really? How long have you got? I know, well, yeah, we might, we might need to do two or three shows, I think. We could probably do one just on the crown, couldn't we? Well, yeah. I mean, tell me when, when to stop or, or wave if you don't want to embarrass yourself by going out live and air saying, shut up. Mm-hmm. Um, when I ran a campaign about five years ago, buy it off Admiral Taverns before they sold it to a, a, J- a Japanese company. Uh, people came out of the woodwork. I knew it simply as Henry's Blues House, where Black Sabbath played their first gig, where we had Led Zeppelin, Status Quo, Roy Gallagher and Taste, Thin Lizzy, Status Quo, all, all, a lot of great rock bands and great blues bands. That's all I knew it as. Mm. Then this guy came in and said that his father had played in a band called the Modern Airs there in 1948, yeah. and it was the first Birmingham beat band, beat group, which... There were a lot of big groups in the 60s, but modern airs were the first. Then um, somebody told me that Ian Campbell's folk group's first venue, before they went on to their big success at Digby Civic Hall, that they were at the Crown. And they recorded there the first live folk album in this country um, for Topic Records. Now, Topic um, were wholly owned by the Communist Party. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a Communist Party trying to carry a message, and you've got folk singers singing subversive songs it's brilliant yeah it's you're, making, you're making money out of it i know it's an amazing history of crown because they it also became a sort of hangout for for mods and and later for punks as well in the Absolutely. 70s and into the 80s um so it's such a pity to see it i mean when you think about it it's just like prime real estate right in the middle of birmingham bang opposite grand central um, <laughs> you come down the american steps and yeah you, you, you look at the grottiest pub in birmingham yeah that's it and it could be the best couldn't it really yeah. it's, uh, and it's certainly what, what a history though going back to the 1940s yeah, tremendous. Yeah. yeah. So, did, so uh, Black Sabbath, they, they weren't they called Earth then? Yeah, they just changed the name from something else. I can't remember what it was, Midas Touch or something. And they were Earth when I heard them. Well, I did actually hear them first. They 
uh, the first night we opened Henry's, in, I've still got it, the guest book, is Anthony James Iommi and, and John Osborne, yeah. uh, who joined as members. And after I got to know them, yeah. didn't know they were mus- musicians, and then they said, can we play a support set here? I said, yeah, of course, and uh, put them uh, opposite 10 years after. And uh, they were great. So yeah. we, we, they got regular sports slots, and after a while they said, would you manage us? And it was a no-brainer, mm. and, and I did. Um, well, the first thing we did was do a name change for obvious reasons mm-hmm. they liked the name earth they're pretty because they've been through a few names beforehand and they got one they that none of them disliked so they stuck with it and then i found i scoured the columns of melody maker and i found two not one but two bands in london called earth mm. and that that did it yeah so, so who filtered the name black sabbath then was it Easy. oh right okay. oh we had with 300 names in in three or four weeks, we were desperate. And we had, people don't believe this now, but it's true. We, we had band meetings at Black Sabbath, formal, proper band meetings yeah. where we, we took notes and, and, we, oh, and, and we acted on. Yeah. Uh, you can't and, imagine that, can you? Yeah, they're all sitting down there. I was like, was he, I'll, I'll take the minutes. <laughs> they were great. They were really serious kids. I mean, listen, people, some of my snobby, jazzy friends say, oh, what do you see in Black Sabbath? I say, Play the play the first records. Play play the Black Sabbath album. Play the Paranoid album, mm. and then you'll know what I saw in them. Mm. They're just the tightest band on this planet. Yeah, and I think they're the most important band. I think the most important and influential band to come out of this country. Well, they are credited with starting me- heavy metal or metal anyway, aren't they? Really, and I mean, there are twenty different sub metal groups now, aren't that's there? That's right. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, who you know, I mean, almost everybody. You'd be surprised who does like Black Sabbath. I mean, it's one of those. It's like a sort of founding. You know, a founding stone of, of yeah. sort of music, sort of post seventies onwards, really. I spend lots of Saturday afternoons at um, Madhouse Recording Studios. They've got a nice coffee bar there, and I go there to do some work, get out of the house, and get, get get some quiet work done. And you hear all the bands up, up and down the corridor, maybe eight or ten bands, and they all sound like Black Sabbath. Mm. Well, no, they don't. They all sound influenced by Black Sabbath. Mm. That was wasn't that Tony Iommi's um, unique fret style, though, wasn't it? That uh, that got that sound. Yeah. Is that a true story? Um, Probably. Yeah. Um, he he actually he was a jazzer. Hmm. They, they did a, a they made a record which we never released called Song for Jim, and it's because of he knows me as a jazz lover. He did a Charlie Christian thing on it, really very well indeed, with all that funny complicated fingering. Hmm. So I just think he was a I just think he was a very clever guitar player. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. And what a career they've had as well, really. Yeah. But so we'll talk about uh, Black Sabbath a little bit, uh, but later we're going to move on to another track now, uh, the Quads. Now, this, this was a band that they were around sort of late 70s, weren't they, in uh, Birmingham? Yep, yep. Uh, John Peel said that they uh, his favourite band of the 1970s. Yeah. And uh, it's this single we're going to play uh, was a small hit for us on Big Bear. And uh, it was in, it's in, it is in John Peel's box of 50 best, 50 favourite singles ever. That's the Quads, and there must be thousands. That was released on Big Bear Records. And uh, Jim, obviously, you've been running Big Bear Records for was it fifty years this year? Uh, come October next month, it'll be fifty years. Yeah. Wow, you're having a party? Uh, several. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you will be invited. Thank um, you. I came to the forty-fifth. I think it was uh, obviously five years ago. I got O level maths. <laughs> it isn't that. That led to a few other good. Uh, Good things, uh, exhibitions came out of that. Yes, it did, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's funny, isn't it? You go to, because I, I thought, oh, I'll pop along. I haven't seen Jim for a, for a while. Actually, I haven't seen you for a couple of years. And then uh, got talking and, uh, yeah, there's loads of things. We had the exhibition at uh, the gallery, Havel and Travis. Because, yeah, we, what we should say as well is that, uh, I've, Jim, I've known you for, what, 35, 36 years. Yep. And uh, I've, I've, I've mainly earned my money as a, as a photographer, and certainly in the 80s. And uh, you were telling me that you'd taken 
these photos in the 60s and uh, I was thinking oh well you know they'd, they'd probably be okay you know what photographers are like very competitive very very egotistical and uh, I didn't get round to it's when that 45th party that's when we started talking about it. and you had some of the the shots that you printed off uh, on a on a sort of on a loop of a video projector and they were they were just I just stood there open-mouthed I couldn't believe it but the photos were just incredible um pains me to say it but they were absolutely brilliant and that's that's when we got the idea of doing the exhibition we've done several since then haven't we but those yeah. photos you photographed the rolling stones obviously black black sabbath in your garden in 1968 <laughs> yeah. which is just a fantastic photo because that that garden's still there isn't it and the trees that were sort of little in the background are like massive and the fence has fallen down um but i mean chuck berry little richard uh, howling wolf i mean what a what a fantastic shot that is yeah, I got a lot of the old blues guys because my mother, my mother took me to see Big Bill Brunsey when I was 14 years old at Birmingham Town Hall, and I didn't know much. I was a, I was a jazz fan by then. I'd been buying. My, I bought my first jazz record when I was eight years old, my first record. Um, but my mother took me to see Brunsey. I think she needed, thought I needed to be broadened a little bit, and it, it was stunning. This old blues guy, this old Mississippi blues, acoustic guitar and, and voice. It was wonderful, and. That stayed with me a long time until eventually um, I saw these Lippmann, Lippmann and Rao tours with, and I, I met Muddy and Wolf and later on B.B. Albert and, and Freddie King mm. and it became a large part of my life. Yeah, I mean, Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters, I mean, that's where a lot of obviously R&B and blues and, you know, turn into rock. It's, sort of, it's, a, it's a sort of line, isn't it, going back in time? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the Rolling Stones took their name from, from, from Muddy, a Muddy Waters song, right, yeah. and they went to record at Ed Cody's studio in, in, in uh, 2420 Michigan, which was where all the early uh, chess records were were recorded, and the, and that's a direct route right back to the Duke joints in, in the 1930s. I mean, mm. Wolf recorded originally for Sam Phillips um, out of Memphis. And they made race records, which were black artists um, selling simple black audiences, mainly through the juke joints in Mississippi, because the freed slaves, they got a little bit of money, they found a place to go, and these, the music in their juke joints were, were the jukeboxes. Uh, Homer Capehart had invented the jukebox a few years earlier, and it swept the, the, the South. And Sam Foods made all his money initially out of black artists selling to, to black audiences. And then later on, of course, he, who did he have? He had, he had, oh, one time he had Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, and somebody else, all on Sun Records, all at the same time. Mm, what, what a, a fantastic label. And Wolf came out of that. Mm. Wolf, Wolf told me, he said, I, I said, oh, it must be great to go to Chicago and record for Leonard. He said, man, he said, when I went up, went to Chicago, he said, I drove my own car there, and I had $4,000 cash in my pocket. He was trying to say, listen, man, I was a success before I got to chess records. Four thousand dollars was a lot of money in those days. You talk about late fifties. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't and, know. Yeah. He's very, very, very nice man. Very proud. Yeah, good, good man. So when did you start taking photos? Because you took the. Also, you took the. I mean, these days people take digital photos, and if you if you got into a dressing room with Howling Wolf or the Rolling Stones, you you could snap off seventy, eighty, a hundred photos. In just like that, couldn't you? But of course, you had a, you had a, was it a Mamiya C330 for tech fans uh, out there? C3, C330 C3, was, was a later on. Sorry, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm getting ahead of Which myself. Pretty, pretty good. Yeah. So, uh, but that's a, for people who don't know, that's what, that's 12 exposures, is it, on a roll film? Yeah. Um, so you, you go in there and you, I, I guess you didn't change films very often. So you had a maximum of 12 shots, didn't you, to, to get these photos? Well, 
Some of them, like Chuck Berry, were, were not at all patient. So really, you, had, you just got 12 shots. Did you just knock on the door then? I mean, did, were you connected to the gig at all, or did you just knock on the door and, and walk in? Um, it's important to know people in influential places, uh, like the woman who ran the desk at, at the town hall in Birmingham, <laughs> yeah. who, who always invited me in. Yeah. Um, but I, I was doing stuff for Melody Maker, so they got used to me there because of the Melody, Melody Maker thing. And... Uh, the bluesmen, the Americans, they slept. When I took Richard, uh, little Richard, uh, I must have shot two rolls of film and I was feeling embarrassed that he was, I was taking all his time. I said, listen, I'm, I'm ever so sorry. Uh, take all your time like this. He said, no, 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 you go ahead, man. He said, I'm the prettiest man in rock and roll. That's right, which was, uh, yeah, it's part of the title of uh, the last exhibition yeah. that we did together, wasn't it? But yeah. those photos are sensational. I've not seen any better photos of little Richard. And what a what a, an act he is, and what a star you say, just a true performer, isn't he? I also found that being a fan and talking about the music and talking about them and the and the people I recorded with that made them relax a bit, mm. and, and they're a bit slower to throw me out than they might otherwise have been. Yeah, yeah. Rolling Stones as well. That was is that Birmingham Town Hall? Those photos uh, several times. The photographs that we were looking at last week were at the old ATV studios at Six Ways in Aston. That it became BRMB, didn't it? It did. Yeah, yeah. Opposite the source factory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. No, amazing, really. That's, um, but to be able to, to have met all those people must be just an in, incredible experience. It didn't seem particularly unusual at the time because, you know, I thought the rest of my life was going to go on being like that. Yeah. Well, it more or less has, hasn't it, Jim? <laughs> it's, not, it's not changed radically since then. Well, I don't have the access to the... Well, they're not guys like that who, who, who created the originators of, of rock. They're not around anymore. No. More's the pity because uh, it's very rare you hear a band these days that's re- that's really got that's really got something special. A lot of players, people play great. Now I don't know how kids today get to be as good as they are because when I was learning to play and I'd try to get my three or four hours a, a day practicing on on trumpet, all I had to worry about was not doing my homework, looking at girls from a long way away, and listen to Kenny Baker's dozen on the radio. Mm. These days, they've got all these techie things they've got to go through. They've got the, the thing that's stuck on their left hand, mm. which they spend all, all their life looking at. How do they find time to practice? Well, I think some people are just driven by music, aren't they? I think it still still probably holds the same now as it did 50, 60 years ago. I think you, I, I still meet bands, you know, young bands that, uh, that are really focused uh, on what they want and what they're doing. Um, so I, I think, yeah, technically things change, but I think, you know, ultimately... I think love of music never really changes, does it? That's encouraging to hear. Yeah. We're going to move on now to uh, to Tom Waits. So do you have a story with Tom? Or? <laughs> no, except I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. Um, three or four American musicians who I think have been so influential in popular music, and with me particularly, uh, people like, like Randy Newman, Lynn Russell and, and Tom Waits, I think they're most, I guess amongst the, with, along with Chuck Berry, amongst the finest American poets of the 20th century. Yeah. And I think they're very important. And uh, I'm still recording Tom Waits songs. I record a band from uh, from Preston in Lancashire called Tibetina, and uh, their name's taken from Professor Longhair, mm-hmm. the New Orleans piano player. And we've recorded two Tom, Tom Waits songs already, and we've, we're going to do more. Yeah, yeah. Although nobody does a Tom Waits song quite like Tom Waits, do they really? It's, no. Yeah. no. I got into Tom Waits when I was at art school. There was um, the uh, technician who used to hire out the... The cameras he used to do, um, he used to make up. T- I think they were illegal, actually. Thinking back on it, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he used to sell uh, bootleg tapes. I got some bootleg live stuff of Tom Waits, and that's. Uh, but he said, "Oh, you got to try this." I think he only charged me three pound fifty. It's just a good business move on it. But um, now it brings back happy memories, Tom. Tom Waits. 
Let's listen to him. That's Tom Waits. Couldn't be anybody else, really, could it? There's no, uh, there certainly isn't anybody that sounds like Tom Waits, is there? Absolutely not. Uh, so that took me right back to the 1970s in art school in Nottingham there. Amazing. So, uh, yeah, but he's, uh, it, it, like I say, he's extremely distinctive, isn't he? There's no, no one's really sort of copied that sound, have they? It's, it's hard to. I also think it's, it must have taken a lot of courage initially not to try and modify his sound, not to try and make his voice sound more immediately acceptable. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a very raw animal sort of sound, really, but it's, and it doesn't sound totally musical at first. When you hear him a few times, you understand the depth of the music. Mm. I used to work with his tenor saxophone player, Teddy Edwards, and he had nothing but good to say about Tom. And, and Teddy was a classic, classic jazz player who you'd have thought was very, very picky, but he, was, he adored Tom. Mm. When Tom came with a band, including Teddy, to London, sort of a European tour, the story goes that um, it went so well in the rehearsals without the band but he sacked the band the first night, yeah. after the first night, and did the rest of the tour with just him and Teddy. Right. And that must have been great, because Teddy was a poet. Yeah, and more profitable, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that was in the back of his mind? He just thought, hang on, this is good oh, enough. I think probably not. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So we're going to move on uh, to, well, Black Sabbath again, we were talking yep. about them. Um, and, uh, I mean, this is, this is probably, if, if people only know one Black Sabbath track, then I guess this is it. Yeah, I think the other real distinctive one is this track, called Black Sabbath off the first album, which was produced by Roger Bain. Um, can I just tell you a bit about that? Yeah. Um, Sabbath were the hardest working band you've ever heard in your life. We, when they did the Star Club in Hamburg, which they did on two separate occasions, midweek, this is absolutely true, they do 6.45s a night. That means between 8 and 2, 45 on, 15 off, all the way through. Weekends, Friday and Saturday, they do 8. They came back to England and to do two one-house sets, was a stroll in the park. They were such a tight band. Now, when we were at the studio with Roger, um, after about an hour, Ozzy whispered to me, what's he doing? I said, I don't know, he's producing our record. He said, not doing anything. I said, well, okay. And on the, in the bus, on the way back to Birmingham, um, we all say, he didn't do anything, he just sat there. It took me a few years to realize that that was pure genius because he knew it was right. Mm. And why mess with things? Now, a lot of producers, um, they try to stamp, imp imprint their presence on a recording so that uh, they, they, they've contributed something. But Roger was so bright to step back and say, this is perfect. All I do is press record and let them count up to four and start. Mm. But he was responsible for that wonderful storm of church bells ringing and rain and, 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 and thunder at the beginning of the Black Sabbath track, the very first one, which is a really distinctive track. But the one you're going to play now was the one, as you said, that uh, it's their trademark. Yeah, and when you say on the bus on the way back, was that a West Midlands transport bus or was that not, <laughs> not, a, not a luxury tour bus? It, neither. It was, a, it was a short wheelbase Ford Transit. All right. Oh, el, el, elderly. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because people used, Spanish used commas before that, didn't they? And then when the transit that's came in. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But the, car, the comma wasn't that stable, wasn't it? It was quite a bit smaller. No, but we had a benefit between the two front seats was the engine. Mm. And it got very nice and warm. And in winter, it was great to sit on the engine on the way back from a gig at three o'clock in the morning. At least you get your bum warm. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a paranoid Black Sabbath. That's the band. And uh, up on Cripple Creek, if, uh, if we're allowed to say that anymore. Probably not. But uh, there you go. That's it. It was fine in the 70s. So the band, is that, uh, is that, that one of uh, your favourite bands? Um, well, two favourite rock bands are... America, it's the band, and in the rest of the world, it's Rolling Stones. I think between the two of them, they do 
most things for me when it comes to rock. The band are very interesting. Um, they were put together with Dylan for Nashville Skyline. Um, you probably remember. But there's a nice story there. There's a, uh, a rock and roller uh, called Ronnie Hawkins who's got a club in Langer Street in Toronto. And uh, Albert Grossman, Dylan's manager, was, was uh, in Toronto and he went to hear the band and he nicked them. Uh, from under Ronnie Hawkins' nose and uh, took them back and uh, and they recorded Nashville Scar and after that they made the uh, their first their own first album which was uh, music from the Big Pink then they did the classic album the, the Brown album which that's from and uh, they didn't never put a foot wrong for me but what beats me is the next time Grossman was in Toronto he was allowed back into Hawkins' club. Maybe, the, maybe he was a big spender, you know. Yeah, maybe. But he nicked his band again. And, uh, <laughs> and this band, uh, he, uh, he nicked the first singer he had called Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin's Full Tilt Boogie were a Ronnie Hawkins band. And he went back for a third time. And they still, he must have been a really big spender, he mm. said. He went for a third time and he nicked a band called Crowbar, which he um, uh, recorded under, under their own name. And I bought... Uh, my first blues tour over here uh, was not an American, wasn't black. It was a man called the King Biscuit Boy, Richard Newell from Toronto. And he had taken a Ronnie Hawkins band. So if I was Ronnie Hawkins, I, yeah. I'm not sure how I'd feel about all this. Well, he's obviously uh, fairly relaxed about it, isn't he? Always, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know, straight. Yeah. It, 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 just, the music business is littered with stories like that, though, isn't it, yeah, really? Yeah, I yeah. think, uh, you know, what, what do you do about it, really? But uh, well, there you go. You can't argue with Albert Grossman, I guess, can you? So did you ever meet the band or? That, yeah, I, I met yeah. Levon, Levon Helm. And uh, he's still a hero of mine. He's, he's died now, poor man, but uh, he's great. He had a good, he went a good solo career afterwards. The, the band had three singers. Um, all good, all great, but Levon was the best. It's not usual to have a really good singing drummer, but... Uh, no, that's uh, uh, Phil Collins. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe yeah. we'll, we'll gloss over that one. But so we're going to move on now to uh, Kenny Baker's Dozen. And back to school. Uh, when I was a kid at school, uh, we always used to listen to radio, the BBC light programme it was in those days. And on Monday nights, we'd listen to a program called Let's Settle for Music with Kenny Baker's Dozen. And on Thursday nights, we listened to The Goon Show. And those what informed what informed our culture. Uh, when I was 14, I suppose, this the school I was at, a lab in a former jazz club. Nothing live, just, just records. But I had to get a, a school master to endorse it and come along and make sure we didn't have too much fun. Mm. But we still did it. Uh, anything could happen at a jazz club, couldn't it? Oh, my goodness me. Um, but Kenny Baker was, was... Kenny was one of the top British trumpet players ever. My, one of my favourite three. The other two being Humphrey Littleton and Bruce Adams. But Kenny, um, very relaxed man, incredibly musical. Uh, every Monday, he'd get together his dozen, actually 15 of them, so mathematics probably wasn't his strong suit. And he'd have new material, new arrangements, nothing that they'd ever done before. They'd go into the Paris studios in, in London, um, and they'd rehearse for a couple of hours, then go to the pub, and come back and go live on air for an hour at nine o'clock every Monday with stuff they'd only ever played through once or twice. And there were clinkers. It wasn't all perfect, but it was so exciting. And later on, when I got into the music business, I got to work with Kenny, and I booked him a few times, and I, I nagged him for years and years and years. I said, Kenny, let's put a dozen back together again. And he kept saying no. And once, one time he said, 
Jim, he only had 14 of them, didn't he? <laughs> he said, Jim, it's, it's, uh, we'll do a deal. You get the band together. You select the musicians. I don't care who they are. It's up to you. And I, that's him, will go and rewrite all the, all the arrangements. So we did. And at that time, I was booking bands into, uh, all the bands into Ronnie Scott's on Broad Street in Birmingham. So it was, there were a lot of bad things going on with that. But the upside for me was I had such fun really doing what I wanted to musically. So I, I reformed the dozen. And that afternoon, where they gathered on, on Monday afternoon to run through the evening's program, uh, it was a 15-piece band. Uh, some of them uh, were there the last time those orchestrations were opened, like Billy Geldard, who was 70 years old, and people like Simon Gardner in his 20s. I mean, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s, all in that band together. And it was a revelation. They were stunning. We recorded them live. Uh, probably our biggest selling album over the years. We won lots of awards with it. But I must tell you, Kenny was a sergeant major, small man, but really tough. And he didn't mind a drink. Um, on the Wednesday night, it's the third night in, we all went to the pub in the intermission. And in, in the pub, Bruce Adams, a large, garrulous, loud Scotsman, and the best trumpet player you've heard, apart from Kenny, said, oh, Kenny, we nailed it now. We've, we've got it now. No problems. We're, this is going to be easy from now on. And walking back, Kenny was seething. He said, did you hear what Bruce said to me? I said, yeah. He said, oh, arrogant. He's, he's got, I hate, hate people too confident. And he called three songs, one after the other. None of them rehearsed before. <laughs> and they all did it live pretty well. And he was a real white knuckle rider. They're really sweating buckets, mm. but uh, Kenny showed them. Kid always did. That's Dr. John and Mamaroo. Uh, no, yeah, we're just talking. Oh, Jim Simpson, we should say, my guest this week, in case you've uh, just tuned in. Jim Simpson, Big Bear Records, ex-manager of Black Sabbath. Uh, and we should talk about the uh, Birmingham International Jazz Festival now. Is it in its, is it its 35th year? We're working on the 35th year, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For next year, yeah. Yeah, I remember when you started that. Goodness <laughs> me, doesn't time fly? It does. Yeah. It all started off with... Um, I got rather fed up with all the jazz was being promoted and sponsored around in, in the UK in the early 1980s. It was very strange stuff. People were uh, fusing jazz with Norwegian folk music, and people. The essence of jazz was lost. So I put on a show in Cannon Hill Park in the Arena Theatre with my 12 favourite British musicians, uh, headed by Humphrey Littleton and Digby Fairweather, and we did an orchestrated jam session. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but. I, 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 I sorted out the repertoire, I sorted out the, the, the solo sequence and the ensembles, and the rest was all improvised. And we uh, recorded, we got the Jazz Album of, of the Year, uh, 1984. Um, and before the sun went down, Humph and Malcolm Powell, who's special projects manager at Mittles and Butlers, who were a significant brewery in those days, uh, said, you've got to put a festival on next year, do more of it. Um, so we met the next week with Stephen Carter, who was a manager, was then the Holiday Inn on Broad Street, which is now Crown Plaza. And he said, OK, you have 100 hotel rooms, free. And uh, Malcolm Price said, OK, I'll pay so much for vans. And that was the beginning. Right. Well, I mean, 100 hotel, that's, uh, that's <gasps> worth having, isn't it? We've met up people from all over the country and from Europe. I guess his bar bill was quite uh, impressive, though, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, he's probably thinking... Uh, also, all the jazz friends were there at night, because when, yeah. when the guys went back to the hotel for a drink in the bar, that's where the fans came. Yeah, yeah. The Holiday Inn, in, certainly in the 80s, um, used to be quite... Because, because we put up some of the large bands, we put them on at the Holiday Inn, and they um, they seemed quite receptive to um, everyone drinking all night. Yeah. So uh, I remember being asked... Uh, I can't remember who it was. Was it with... I think it was with Carter. 
Oh, and Michael Elphick was there as well, and Paul McGann. Yeah. And we'd been playing the piano and singing all night. And the manager came over, I think it was half seven in the morning, and said, Can you, could you leave now because you're scaring the people that are coming down for breakfast? <laughs> so after, uh, yeah, that was a good night. So, uh, so th- 35th year next year. So, yep. last year was very successful as well, wasn't it? They, all of them. Did. I mean, the numbers of people that it brings into the city is phenomenal, yeah. isn't it? 76,000 this year. Yeah. People. And when you think what they spend on hotel rooms and taxis, restaurants, and yeah. you know all yeah. the extra bits and bits and pieces. Yeah. The the, the, the spend figure of this for this year apparently was 3.7 something million. Yeah. So, but we did 234 shows, and 218 of them were free to the public, mm. and we had bands of. A dozen countries. I mean, 234 shows because you you there's, you you've not got a big team, have you, behind you there, really? But well, no, is we, it mostly you that books the acts? Is it you no, choose t- the acts? Tim Jennings and I book the acts. Yeah. Uh, Sarah does the, the marketing, and uh, Nick holds it all together. I mean, Nick is the glue that holds us together because he's the techie one. So he, four of you put 234 yeah. shows on yeah. in how many days? Is it ten days. Ten, yeah. ten days. Yeah. That's uh, that's speaking as a promoter. That looks like quite a heavy schedule. Yeah. But you get used to it. I mean, you do. For yeah. instance, I'm book, I booked maybe a dozen acts already for next year already. Yeah. Uh, we, we get in the habit of it. I suppose you've got a year in it, really. You know. Well, the thing is, the bands you wanted to book for 2018, you, you couldn't quite land the deal or they weren't available. You say, okay, you don't waste your energy. You say, okay, let's do it for 2019. And you book it there and then. Mm. So by the time 2018 starts, there's quite a bit of 2019 already booked. Yeah. So, do you get around to many of the, the shows yourself? I try to announce as many as possible. Uh, maybe get about four or five a day. Mm. But uh, yeah, there's always a nice little launch party, isn't there? At, yeah. Uh, it was at the Rep this year, was it? What was the band that played there? The one they were doing like sort of it sounded <laughs> like um, sort of cartoon music. Do you remember yeah, on the? They're wonderful band. They're called the Budapest Ragtime Orchestra from Hungary. Clearly, but they do a lot of Spike Jones and City Slicker, City Slicker stuff. Yeah, which is very wild. They were they were great. They were really yeah. good. Yeah. I enjoyed that. So it's always a good do. Always look forward to that in my uh, yeah. social calendar. Well, they're, they're booked again for next year. Excellent. Budapest. Yeah. Okay. So actually, let's move on to some uh, some more music, shall we? What what we got next? Well, um, I recorded uh, for the last part of his life. I recorded a very interesting uh, fiddle player called Claude Williams. He was in the Canbasi Orchestra in, in 1934. He won Downbeat Award in America for Best Guitar Player in America in 34. He quit Basie in 36 because Basie wouldn't play, play fiddle in the band. Of course he wouldn't. Mm. I mean, the band wouldn't fit there. Mm. But Claude's a real hero in Kansas City. Um, when I went to Kansas City to record him, he met me at the airport. As we walked through the airport, all the, all the check-in girls, all the taxi drivers, all the porters say, hello, Claude, hello, Claude, hello, Claude. He's a real hero in Kansas City. And, um, I was there for a week, and we made a great album with him. And uh, one of the days on the, way, on the way home from the studio, he put his radio on. Now, I'd, I always hated country music. I always applauded Buddy Rich, uh, because apparently when Buddy was going in for a heart operation, the uh, nurse said, does, does something tr-? he's looking worried, naturally. This is does something trouble you, Mr. Rich? He, he said, yes, country music. And uh, I tend to subscribe to that. Mm. But when I was in Kansas City, I heard this great song on, on the radio called, called Jitterbug by something called the Charlie Daniels Band, which I've never heard of. And I said, Claude, who's that? And he said, I don't know. Let's go to the radio station. Now, they knew him there. Went in. Claude knew the, the presenter. And we had a chat and a glass of beer afterwards. And the presenter said, listen, tomorrow night, I'm, I'm going up the road a bit to hear Charlie Daniels Band. Come with me. I thought, great, I would. Now, up the road, turned to be Leavenworth, Kansas, which is 200 miles away. But it was still a great gig. They played in a room that maybe held 
200, 250 people, and it was maybe 80% full, and there was nine of them on stage, and they were absolutely wonderful. I suddenly became a convert to, to country music. I talked to Charlie afterwards, and he got no record deal, and I'd more or less talked him into signing. In those days, there was no email, and there's was, there was no Googling. You'd go back, and you'd send a letter, and I sent him the contract, and he went very quiet. In the meantime, he'd Albert signed... Grossman had turned up. <laughs> <laughs> he'd signed direct to CBS Columbia. Yeah. Columbia Records in New York, which is CBS Worldwide. He signed direct to them and recorded a song called The Devil Went Down to Georgia, which no. was a monstrous hit. But in my defense, I would never have recorded The Devil Went Down to Georgia. No. I'd no. have just done Jitterbug and stuff like that. I, lo- I love that. It's, it's so such an analog world, isn't it, that you hear something on the radio and you go, what is that? And Because now you just... Shazam it, or if you've got a digital radio, it come up. But you go, oh, let's go around to the radio station and ask them. It's fantastic. Let's, should we listen to it? Charlie yeah, Daniels. Please. Uh, the Charlie Daniels band and uh, Jitterbug. That was, uh, that was interesting, wasn't it? It was nice and lively. <laughs> yeah, I'm just getting my breath back. I've been dancing like mad. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we all have, yeah, yeah. It just shows you how fit we are. <laughs> So, uh, so, so, that, so you missed out on Charlie Daniels, basically. I suppose. Well, it, do, it was pie, It was pie in the sky, really. We, you know, it's like you hear a band, you want to work with you, you approach them, and uh, you got a fairly good hit rate, though, haven't you? To be honest, yeah. is there any other big ones that you've missed out on? You think? Yeah, yeah. Um, we're distributed by uh, Direco in Holland, in Holland and Belgium, for many years, and those are the days that we had licensees throughout Europe, and I'd, every month I'd spend four or five days. I'd go, go to Amsterdam to, to talk to Direco, then I'd go to Paris for, for Pafé and so on. And um, I got really on well with Bert Salden, my label manager in, in Holland. And one time I went to see him, he said, uh, got a really good record. Uh, recently here, he, he, I forget his label, Telark maybe? No, Johnny Host Music. He said, good, do you want to lease it for England? I said, sure, let me have a listen. And he played to me. And I said, not for the English market, Bert. I mean, that's that's too naive to, to it. They wouldn't go for that. About a fortnight later, he phoned me up. So that record I played you, I said, yeah. He said, it's uh, it's now number three in Holland. It got released in Germany and everywhere else. Do you want it? Are you sure you don't want it? So I said, send it to me. So he said to me, I, I said, Bert, no way England buy this. And a third time, he was number one in Holland, number six in Germany, all over Europe, it was a hit. He said, are you sure you don't want it? And I said, the English market will never go for this because they're only offer, offering it to me for England. And uh, eventually it was released in England by somebody else and there were uh, several covers and three versions of it were on the top 20 in the UK at the same time. The Birdie song. <laughs> that's, a, that's a classic, that is. Who yeah. doesn't like that? Oh, you've got to, you're probably six <laughs> pints in before you do, though, aren't you, to be honest? <laughs> yeah, Maybe more. But at least I could walk down the Hackney Road now and people don't say, hey, there's Jim Simpson. He's the birdie song man. You would be defined by it, wouldn't you? Yeah. That would, that would be it. Yeah. So uh, probably in some ways for the best. Yeah. They'd probably play it at my funeral. Can you imagine that? Yes. Yeah. Well, everyone would be able to, you wouldn't be able to resist it, would you? Everyone would be up. It'd be very different. Uh, but hopefully that's not for at least 25 years. It's going to be for a year because they've closed Paradise. You, you know that. that. In town. In town, yes. Yes. Paradise Circus. Oh, is it? It's Paradise now, yeah. I, so. thought, I thought they closed Paradise. I thought we all got an extra year. Well, that's <laughs> it, yeah. Well, that's undoubtedly where we're going, Jim. And uh, so we're going to move on to Nomi Rosenberg now. Yeah. Nomi's um, a Sinti gypsy, which is J- Django Reinhardt's, uh, what he was. He's uh, uh, not a direct descendant of, Rein- of of Django, but he is a descendant. The Rosenbergs and the Reinhardts have intermarried all, all the way through. His elder brother is Jimmy Rosenberg, which many people will tell you is the finest guitar player on this planet. Uh, 
I don't wouldn't go that far by any means, but he's a cracking player. But he's got troubles. Um, he's been in prison three times, and I know his bass player, Arno van der Hoot. I said, Arno, what's wrong with Jimmy? And he looked at me contently and said, uh, everything. So, poor old Jimmy. This is his younger brother, Nomi, who when he was 15, he played on Carnegie Hill, New York, with George Benson and Les Paul. And Nomi can't read and he can't write. He just plays guitar as naturally as most people breathe. That's uh, Howard McCrary. And uh, before that, we had uh, ha um, Randy Newman, which uh, Marie. I was going to dedicate that to my lady Marie, but it's just a bit too autobiographical, really. And before <laughs> that, uh, what do we have before that? Nomi Rosenberg. Nomi Rosenberg, yeah, yeah. Great, great trio there. And Howard McCrary, this is, I mean, a lot of these, all, certainly CDs we're playing, are on Big Bear Records. That's so, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, how many albums have you released over the almost 50 years? Oh, uh, nearly 200. Wow. A lot of American blues men. Um, but the McCrary one came about very strangely. Um, the Phil Upchurch band came to Europe and they hadn't got any English dates. And I was in the privileged position of booking artists for Ronnie Scott's, my plaything again, and I persuaded them to let me put on Phil Upchurch, who had a big hit on Sue Records back in 1960-something, with a song called You Can't Sit Down. I always loved Sue Records, always loved Upchurch. So we've got the only UK dates he's ever played um, were in Birmingham, six shows at Ronnie Scott's. And uh, I knew of, didn't know, I knew of most of the guys in the band. I, I remember the tenor player was Clifford Solomon, who's a legend, he did... Bill Doggett's Honky Tonk, and I didn't know the piano player. At the first rehearsal, the piano player stole the show. He played great. He sang wonderfully, and really straight-ahead rhythm and blues voice. So I buttonholed him after, after the rehearsal. I said, Howard, you know, love what you do. I said, who'd you listen to? Ernie Andrews? J Jimmy Witherspoon? Joe Williams? He said, who are those guys? It amazed me that he got to be as good as he was. He didn't know the classic singers. It turned out he knew nothing about rhythm and blues. He was offered the piano chair with, with Up Church, learned the songs, learned the repertoire, and delivered them with such conviction he was the star of the show. During the, the week, we spent a lot of time together, and I was playing him all the old stuff, and he really started to go for it. Um, and we, I'll give an example. In those days, we had cassettes. I made him a cassette of 14 songs. I said, Howard, these are the sort of songs I'd like you to listen to, and maybe there's one or two you'd like to do, but this shows the direction I think you might want to go in. He came back two days later. He'd learned 14 songs. Lyric, chords, the lot. And he's a sponge, an amazing musical person. Anyway, um, at the end of the week, we shook hands and promised undying correspondence between us, and I waved him off to the airport. And next, the next day, they were due to fly to L.A., and the next morning, I had a phone call. Jim, it's Howard. I said, Howard, where are you? You're supposed to be on a flight to Los Angeles. He said, I'm at Birmingham Airport. Come and pick me up. I said, what's happening? He said, I've come to stay with you for a while. I want to talk, talk music to you. He stayed for 18 months. What, in your house? No, two oh. or three days in my house. Oh. Then I was, because you say, how big's your house? Because Dr. John was probably still there, wasn't he? <laughs> Very small, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so... We needed money, as always, so I persuaded the chaps at Ronnie's to let me put on a show, which I called The Midnight Slows, and uh, at 11.30, the main band finished at Ronnie's. Every night at midnight till 2, Howard would go on stage, just hear him and piano and singing, and the audience was sensational. They re he really built a following. So we built a band around him. Um, we got a flat, I rented him a piano, and paying for all this with money he met at Ronnie Scott's. Um, 
put a band together, started doing some shows, did some radio, did TVs in Europe. He, we did Germany, Austria, France and Belgium tour with him. And things were going really well. We started to record him. And then in the, his wife, who's the sister of Chaka Khan, uh, she came over and took him by the ear. I don't think she totally approved of his friends in Birmingham, most of which were female. Um, so he took him back to L.A. and we lost touch. Then Julian Smith, Birmingham saxophone player, plays soprano sax, wears a woolly hat, and he, he, uh, he's famous for his Britain's Got Talent appearances. Uh, he's now starring, Julian that is, he's now star, starring on the big cruise liners. And he was laying over for three days in Hong Kong, end of one cruise to pick up another one, went to a club. And who was singing and playing there but Howard McCreary in Hong Kong. Um, it turned out that he's long divorced from Tammy. He's married a very attractive Chinese girl. Um, and he's very happy in Hong Kong. But he said, make sure you put me back in touch with Jim, which he did. Well, I got hold of him. We exchanged a few emails and ha had one of these fancy modern conversations you have on your phone face to face. Uh, whatever they're called. FaceTime. That's it. Yeah. Um, and he said, what happened to that record we made? I said, well, nothing, Howard. We never signed papers, and you bogged off before we do anything. He said, well, send me the papers. So I sent him the papers, and uh, it was, wasn't mixed, so I mixed it and remastered it and released it next month, and that track we just played was one of the tracks off it. Well, what, what a story. Yeah. What a story. So do you, so 200 albums. Um, I mean, do you, uh, do you have a back catalogue? Can people, uh, I guess, somewhere out of pressing, some are sold out? or um, On vinyl... On vinyl, we've got probably 170 of them. And when vinyl started, when people started buying cassettes, we released everything on, on vinyl and cassette. People started buying CDs. We only ever released one album on CD and on vinyl. Yeah. So I've got 50 albums on on uh, CD. And there's more online, uh, which have not been released physically. And the rest of the stuff's in the catalogue. It needs to be remixed and re-released which i'm doing yeah we're 50 years old and throughout the year the year of the 50th we're uh, releasing remastered material right you're having another party as well yeah yeah okay. end of october i'll eat another date okay yeah sounds good yeah put me down for that definitely uh going to move on to some more music now uh joe cocker i love things that leon russell does and leon russell really got it together with cocker and and with a, with a sensational group of Rita Coolidge was one of the Rita Coolidge was a backing singer. Anyway, she was the Delta Lady that he he wrote about, by the way. Leon, that is, and Leon did this wonderful tour called Mad Dogs and Englishmen, and uh, the album is sensational. And this is the first track. Oh well, fantastic! That's uh, Joe Cocker live, and uh, <laughs> another choice of my guest this week, Jim Simpson. From, uh, from Big Bear Records and Birmingham International Jazz Festival and, and so much more, really. Um, but I think we've almost come to the end of our time. So oh, that's sad. I was just going to enjoy myself. We could probably, we've probably got enough for at least another show, haven't we, really? I mean, uh, you know, the, the, all the things that you've done. I mean, the Jazz Festival alone and, you know, all the, uh, all the two, 200 releases. I mean, that's probably a month of shows, isn't it? But, um, but thanks very much for coming in. It's been extremely interesting. And as I say to a lot of my guests, that I've known you for a long time, decades and decades, but we've never actually sat down for two hours and talked about music, have we? No, it's, it's, it, all our lives revolve around music, and it's often the last thing you talk about. 
Yeah, it is. And when you bump into people, when you see people, you're doing something else and, you know, yeah. there's other people around. So uh, that's that's what I love about doing these shows, that you can sit down and, and I've heard a few things that I've not heard before as well. So uh, so that's good. But um, so what's what's uh, how many more releases have you got coming? You've got uh, Howard McCrary. We've got, in, next month we're releasing Howard McCrary and an album called Jazz City UK Vo- Volume 2, which are two jam sessions, um, one from 1984, one from 1987, featuring top British jazz players like Humphrey Littleton, Digby Fairweather, Dick Morrissey. It's an all-star lineup. Then we've got a, an album called uh, uh, Damn Right, I Got the Blues, which are uh, 20 tracks from 1970s blues catalogue with Homesick James, Snooky Pryor, Washboard Willie, Boogie Woogie Red, uh, Dr. Ross, the Harmonica Boss, Willie Mabon, uh, Mickey Baker, Tommy Tucker, who had a hit with High Hill Sneakers. Well, that's that's our fourth release. We've got Sugar Otis. Remember Sugar Otis? He played on the Clint Eastwood movie, Play Misty for Me, from Monterey Fairground. We've got an album recorded in Birmingham with Sugar Otis. Uh, we've got Chick, Chick Willis, who's known as the Stoop Down Man. Don't ask why. Um, we've got uh, Muscles being re-released. Remember Muscles? Mm-hmm. We've got a re-release of Duncan Swift, the Harlem Stride Star Piano Duncan player. Swift. I did, I did the photos for, you did. for that album. And uh, who was it? I don't know who had the idea of taking a grand piano up the Clint uh, Hills. My, my idea. It was your idea. D- so, D- Duncan insisted on it, not just a Bosendorfer, but a particular Bosendorfer, which lived in Bristol. That's all he wanted to play. So we had to ship it up from Bristol for him and have him for it this far. We thought, oh, we'd take it on top of Clint Hills. Yeah, I know. I mean, we did it. We had uh, uh, we had the, the specialist piano removers and the Land Rover, the Rangers came and helped us. Yeah. And we took a grand piano up to the top of the Clint Hills and, uh, and then took the photos. And the wife of the editor of Very Mail came past on a horse and the two children also on horses. And she engaged in conversations because she knew from Ian, I can't remember his name, the editor. And she never mentioned that there's a grand piano on top of Clint. No. Like the most no. normal thing. No, we're just standing around, yeah. I got, I, they're, they're on the back of the album, aren't they? I took they a photo, are, I got yeah. a nice moody black and white photo. I thought, yeah. like, you know, three horses and a grand piano <laughs> and Duncan Swift. This has got a... I must be able to make something out of this, yeah. but uh, that was a great day out. Great but, photographs, really, really so good. We're going to uh, thanks, Jim. We're going to we're going to finish on uh, three tracks now. Um, there's "Lady Sings the Blues" and uh, "Whiskey Brothers" from King's Heath. Yes, indeed. And uh, of course, a band that we've not mentioned that we should have really, which is King Pleasure and the Biscuit Boys. I mean, they've been playing around Birmingham for years. I did a I did a single cover with them as well, didn't I? I did a photo you, session. You did, you did. At the Holiday Inn. Yeah. I'd forgotten how uh, amenable the Holiday Inn used to be to uh, to, to showbiz. I did a few sessions there. They're always they're always very very keen to let you go in and do something. I think you're right. Though. It's appropriate for the King Pleasure and the Biscuit Boys to be the built toppers. Yes, thirty years on the road. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Great, great band. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Jim. And we must do it again because we've barely scratched the surface of uh, the, the last sort of fifty, sixty years. Oh, thank you, Dave. Thank you for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your podcast app.